Good morning, everybody, again. I feel like we need to take a nap. This is a full morning. Um, Take a little break, a breather. But uh, I went to a wedding recently. Yeah, and uh, it was not a very good Baptist wedding because there was dancing at the wedding. And... um, During the dancing, it was interesting, the music was interesting, and it was, you know, kind of modern dance music. There was a few good 80s songs in there, but not enough. (laughs) And um, I noticed this couple standing there. I'm going to pick on them, and I didn't ask them if I could this morning, but I'm going to... Gabe and Diane, can I pick on you this morning? He's not even here. Okay, good. Um, I know that Gabe and Diane love to dance. And over the last few years, they've learned to do this Western style of dancing, and they've traveled the country to go dancing at different places, and it's wonderful. And I noticed them standing over there during the first few songs, not dancing, and just kind of watching the crowd, and I'm thinking, they're waiting for a country Western song, and I don't think they're going to get one. (laughs) And I felt really bad for them, because I'm like, I know they want to get out there and dance and swing and do their thing, but they're standing there. And then a few songs later, I saw them out there, and it totally was not a country-western song, but they were making it work, right? They were making the music work for them and having fun and doing their thing. Thanks for letting me pick on you, Diane, but um, it, was just, it was fun to watch that joy. And this morning, as we're in Matthew chapter 11, we have a story, a parable that Jesus tells. It's kind of a really unusual parable. It's one of the most difficult parables in the Gospels to actually interpret it because the, the differences in context between today and the, and the culture of Jesus are very different. But it's a, it's a parable, really, about dancing and dancing to the wrong music. So Jesus tells this in Matthew 11, starting at verse 16, if you follow along. But to what shall I compare this generation? So he's talking about the whole generation of people, all the people that he's, he's come to. He says, it is like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to each other, saying, we played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. Then we played a funeral song for you, and you didn't lament. So the marketplace, or another name for it is the agora, was an open space in the middle of a city. And in in big cities, these were very large Uh, centers of public life, open where business was done, goods were bought and sold and traded, public events took place in the agora or in the marketplace, and even legal proceedings and trials. So if you wanted to go watch a good execution, that's where you would go watch it. It was in the agora or the marketplace. And normally, if you think about that, think of a bustling city where all this trade is happening and it's loud and people are talking and yelling and all these things are happening. What would the children be doing in that place? You'd think they'd be playing, right? They'd be running around maybe playing tag or hide and seek or stick ball or something like that. They would be playing. So it's interesting that when Jesus tells this parable, he says, this generation is like children sitting. What kind of children sit in the marketplace? So that's the first unusual thing about this. You think of them playing, but they're sitting unexpectedly. And you might picture 
uh, two kind of rival groups of kids, right? Maybe it's boys versus girls. Maybe it's the, the preppies versus the stoners or whatever it is today. I don't know. These two groups of kids kind of looking at each other and they've kind of squared themselves off to each other and they're calling at each other in judgment, sitting, calling back and forth. You didn't play the game that we wanted to play. You ever experienced that on a grade school playground? You ever seen, seen it on a grade school playground? So Jesus is comparing his generation basically. And, and these are the people that he'd come to minister to. These are the people that he had come to save. He's comparing them to capricious, whiny children. Sitting in immature judgment basically upon God's messengers. And the whims and the the desires of these children define the game that they're willing to play. And when they don't get what they want, what do you do on the playground when when you don't get what you want? You take your ball and you go home. Right? And that's kind of the, the picture here. They're ready to take their ball and go home. And neither John the Baptist nor Jesus gave these people what they wanted. Verse 19, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, well, he's got a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a gluttonous and drunk man, a lover of tax collectors and sinners. So they get hung up on the behavior of God's messengers rather than looking at the truth or listening to the truth of God's message. And that's, that's not even entirely accurate. I think what Jesus is getting at, I should say it this way, they use the unacceptable and unusual behavior of God's messengers. They use that to justify their rejection of both John and Jesus. In other words, they don't want to listen to John and Jesus. It's not like they get distracted by the behavior. They just don't want to listen to him. And so they use their behavior. They use the way in which they come to reject and to not have to listen to them. So the serious, pretty disciplined, wearing camel hair and and, and eating locusts, John comes along. They look at him and say, hey, tune in, buddy. We're playing dance music here. If you don't chill out, if you don't smile, if you don't dance to the beat, well, you must be evil. You must be from Satan. Then Jesus comes along doing the very thing that John wasn't doing. And they look at him and say, really? Can't you take life a bit more seriously? Don't you, don't you see what kind of serious time we're in? And they call him a glutton and a drunkard, really referencing back to Proverbs chapter 23, It says, be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty. So so in one sense, they're saying, we don't have to listen to Jesus because he's obviously the kind of fool that Proverbs warns us about. But of, of course, Jesus was neither a glutton nor a drunkard. So their assessment of him was actually slanderous. And his behavior towards the marginalized, he was a lover of tax collectors and sinners, those people. That was an unacceptable mode of of social interaction. So, So they believed Jesus was guilty of foolishness by associating with people they would never associate with. But to Jesus, wisdom, verse 19, wisdom is proven by her works. So in the end, what's actually happening here, what Jesus is saying about these people 
is that they are sitting in judgment over God's revelation. They are so arrogant that unless God himself dances to their tune, they don't want to have anything to do with him. And sitting over judgment, sitting in judgment over God's revelation is placing ourselves in the place of God. And what we do when we do that is we reject God for our own preferences. And when preference is king, we miss God's revelation. We miss it in at least two ways. First of all, we miss the way of the kingdom. So they look at Jesus and they see in him a stumbling block. They see in him something that doesn't make any sense to them, and they miss the way of the kingdom, that when the kingdom comes, it comes in love, and it comes to serve the least of these, the outsiders, the ones who need it. And the second thing they missed was that they missed the signs of the kingdom. So Jesus is doing all these mighty miracles. He's healing people. He's cleansing lepers. He's raising the dead, and they completely miss that. And these are pictures of the presence of God. These are pictures of the, of the presence of God's kingdom, and they don't want to see it because they want their preferences to be king. And the spirit of this generation that Jesus addresses, if we're honest, continues to be alive and well, maybe more alive and well today. And I'm convinced it's alive and well when our preferences become king and sit in judgment over God's word. And let me just give you a couple of, of examples, a few examples of what that looks like. Preference is king, and we stand in judgment over God's word when we give our preferences greater weight than God's preferences. So we place our own pleasure, our own comfort, our own agenda for our lives over God's. And we justify being able to do that by saying something like this. God is meeting my preferences. When I want something, God gives it to me. And when I pursue something that I want, God lets me have it. So doesn't that mean that God wants me to be happy? Doesn't God want me to continue pursuing all these things that he's given me? But when we do this, it's not necessarily obeying God. It's oftentimes making ourselves smarter than God. And rejecting what he actually wants for us in exchange for our own kingdom. Using God to justify our preferences. The second way I think we we do this, we make preference king, we set ourselves over the word of God is when we resist repentance. Repentance is turning away from our sin and turning to God. It's doing 180 degrees. And in order to do that, you have to first understand that you're wrong. We don't want to feel bad about ourselves, so we resist anything that would call us to change. And and when someone critiques me, when someone challenges me, I generally find a way to disqualify that person so I don't have to listen to what they say. You don't dance to the right tune, so you can't talk to me. Third way, I think that we set preference as king and set ourselves in judgment over the word of God is when we allow our wounds greater power than Jesus' healing work. And we hear a lot about wounds today. Trauma is a popular word. Microaggressions, have you heard that one? PTSD gets thrown around. 
And there's no lack of that kind of conversation even in the church. So if we don't like something about the church, or our feelings get hurt, or perhaps, and I'm not denying that, that often people suffer legitimate abuse in the church, we hang on to those as an identity. So we take those wounds, we take those traumas, we take those microaggressions, that abuse or whatever, and we hang on to it as an identity. And when we do that, the church and all that it represents, even Jesus himself, become our enemy, become our abuser. Instead of allowing Jesus to give us what we need in our pain, we make our pain our identity. Instead of receiving from Jesus, we demand reparations from Jesus himself. So often we take our wounds and allow them greater power than the healing work that Jesus wants to do in our lives. And finally, I think we set our preferences as king and place ourselves over God's word when we neglect the family of God. If we're being honest, many of us have allowed our spiritual lives, whether it could be just Pursuing God, reading the Bible, speaking to God in prayer, worshiping together with God's people, fellowshipping with the church, being an active part of the local church. We allow that to take a backseat to other things that seem more important. I mean, how often have we taken vacations or home projects or sleeping in? Sports teams, camping trips, work, any other thing. How often have we let those things keep us from gathering together with the saints? And no, I don't mean the New Orleans Saints and staying home on Sunday and watching NFL football. How often have we allowed those things, our preferences, to keep us from the family of God? When we set our preferences as king, that becomes really easy. And if our preferences are our primary filter, then we will not recognize the word of God when we hear it. Like this generation that Jesus addressed, we won't recognize the work of God when we see it. We'll mistake our preferences for the kingdom, and Jesus will never, ever dance to the tune we're playing. Or the Jesus we're worshiping is one that dance to, dances to whatever tune I play. And I, I'm, I hate to inform you, but that's not the real Jesus. Unfortunately, when we do this, we may end up missing his dance altogether. And I want to be found at the king's dance. Now, because this generation sits in judgment on Jesus, unfortunately, Jesus will sit in judgment on them, which is exactly where he goes in verse 20. He begins to, for the first time in the book of, of Matthew, pronounce a set of woes. These are, these are prophetic oracles, woes, basically speaking judgment or anticipating judgment on someone. And he speaks woes upon several Jewish cities in which that he has been, in which he's done many of his miracles and his mighty works. So verse 20, Then he began to denounce the cities in which the greatest of his works had been done because they did not repent. Chorazin, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to heaven? 
you will be cast down to Hades. For if the works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would remain until today. Nevertheless, I say to you, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you. Tyre and Sidon, these first couple cities he references and and, and compares to Chorazin and Bethsaida, these were ancient Phoenician cities, and they're both actually still in existence. You can Google map them, and they'll take you right to the the Mediterranean Sea, right on the coast of modern-day Lebanon. These cities were often denounced by the Hebrew prophets. So if you go look at Isaiah and Ezekiel, you'll hear judgments and woes against Tyre and Sidon. And they were often condemned for their affluence because they had a lot of money. They were, they were in trade. They had a lot of goods, and they became arrogant because of their affluence. They were also known for their worship of the god Baal. In fact, the most famous Baal worshiper was, anybody know? Queen Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, who herself was a Phoenician princess. She likely came from the city of Tyre or Sidon, one of those cities. And so they were known, Tyre and Sidon weren't known for their repentance. They weren't known for submitting themselves to the God Yahweh, the only true God. They were, they were known for idolatry and affluence and arrogance. But what Jesus says is that if he had come and gone to Tyre and Sidon and done the very miracles he was doing in Israel, the Phoenicians would have repented a long time ago if they were given that same privilege, if they'd been given that same opportunity. Crazy. As many prophets as had yelled at those two cities, Jesus says they would have repented if I'd gone there. And he solidifies this point. He compares the city of Capernaum. And Capernaum was, was the city where he spent most of his time in his ministry. It was really his home base there on the Sea of Galilee. He compares it to the ancient Canaanite city of Sodom. And you know Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, which were basically destroyed with fire and brimstone in Genesis chapter 19. These were two wicked and evil cities that the Bible is clear deserved their punishment. Yet according to Jesus, the people of Sodom would have repented. They would have put them on sackcloth and ashes if they'd been given the same privilege that Capernaum had. So Jesus mentions three cities here, Tyre, Sidon, Sodom. You have to notice that these are all Gentile cities. These are not Jewish cities. These are not cities that were inhabited by God's chosen people, Israel. However, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, these are all Jewish cities where the Messiah himself had appeared and walked and performed the greatest miracles in history. So what's the point? What's Jesus trying to say here? Well, if you situate this Woe that he, that he pronounces. If we situate this within the biblical story, these Jewish cities are representative of Israel itself. These are a people who had inherited from their forefathers the promises that God had given to Abraham himself. They inherited the covenant that God had given to Moses and the people on Mount Sinai. They inherited the temple. They inherited God's own presence. They were God's people. They were the innumerable descendants of Abraham of Isaac, and of Jacob, and they were ridiculously privileged. 
as God's very own people. God had said to Abraham, Yahweh had said to Abraham, through you all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Israel was to be a light. They were to be a blessing to the nations. They were to take their privilege and pass those blessings on to all the peoples of the earth. Have you read the Old Testament? That doesn't happen. They don't do it. They get selfish. They become arrogant with their blessings and with their privilege. So rather than leveraging their privilege for the good of the nations, they use their privilege to protect their privilege. Rather than sharing their blessings, they hoard their blessings to themselves and build walls around their blessings. Rather than being a light to the Gentiles, they hide their light and keep it to themselves. So Jesus critiques these cities for failing to repent, even though the privilege and the blessing of having the Christ himself doing his mighty works in them right before their eyes had taken place. But that was not enough to persuade them to turn around and turn back to God. In fact, they likely didn't see the need to repent. They were content to accept God's generosity. To accept God's generosity without a matching heart change and submission. How often, how often does this describe us? Willing and ready. God, give me all of your blessings. Give me the benefits of the kingdom. But I don't want to submit to any king. So what do these cities need to repent from? I think we've already seen that Jesus was calling these people to repent from their preferences. And in so doing, submitting to a, a generous king. He was he was calling them to enter the kingdom and become what they were intended to be. A blessing to the world. And I'm convinced that this is the very same kind of repentance to which Jesus is calling you and me and this entire church to today. So here's an important question. What are you doing with the privilege God has given you? We hear a lot about, if you'd heard this term, white privilege today. Along with other buzz terms like white guilt, white fragility. And I'm not going to lie, look around the room. Most of us in this room are Caucasian. Now, in the political conversation of our day, we've been programmed to respond to this idea that we're white or an accusation of white privilege in one of two ways. Either we're supposed to feel guilty. Have you felt that? And from which, if we feel guilty, what do we have to do? We have to repent, right? So if if guilt is the answer to white privilege, we have to repent of our privilege. Or, on the other side, we, we react to that word, or that phrase, white privilege, through a sense of defensive anger. If we do that, from which we can launch an attack. So we're either supposed to be guilty and repent of our privilege or we're supposed to use our privilege to attack. But can I suggest a different way? A third way. What I take to be a better way. I think a kingdom way, even the way Jesus is suggesting in this passage. Because Jesus is addressing how we handle our privilege. And if so, we, we must address this question. Am I privileged? The answer is yes. 
Okay, is your skin white? Then you have some privilege. Are you a male? You're privileged in certain ways in our society. Do you live in the United States? Then you are more privileged compared to the majority of people who have ever lived. You are definitely privileged. Do you own a Bible in your own language? You are privileged. Have you ever heard the gospel? Then you are privileged. Can you go to the church without being persecuted? You're privileged. Do you know Jesus? I would say that's the greatest privilege of all. So, the, so the, it's, we shouldn't like argue with the fact that we're privileged. Yes, we're privileged. God has given us privilege. So the answer to the privilege question is not to say, how dare you call me privileged? But the, the answer is also not to repent of our privilege and try to be less privileged. Try to be something that you're not. Rather, like the Israelites of old, the possession of privilege is itself a weighty responsibility. So how do I answer the white privilege question? Am I, white? Am I privileged because I'm white? Probably. What am I going to do with that privilege? Because here's what tends to happen because of the sinfulness of human hearts. When we experience privilege, we become confident. And we begin to take for granted our privilege. Like, this is the way it's always been. This is the way it should be. In our, in our confidence, then, we become arrogant. And we begin to assume that somehow we've earned or deserve our privilege. And then in our arrogance, we become presumptuous. We presume that because we're privileged, God is pleased with us. And then we expect from him or we demand from him more privilege. And then in our presumption, what do we do? We become lazy. We expect to be served. And so what does prayer become? An intercom to the butler. God, can you please bring me some iced tea? We expect to be served by everyone, including God. And then finally, in our laziness, according to Jesus here, what happens? We become judged. The weight of privilege is heavy. It was heavy for the cities of Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin. The question isn't whether or not you're privileged. The question is, how will you use your privilege for the sake of others and the glory of God? Now, we certainly can use our privilege to protect our privilege. We can remain selfish. We can remain unrepentant. Jesus confronted this in his generation. Or we can repent of our selfishness. We can repent of our arrogance. We can repent of our presumption and our laziness. I don't think we have to repent of our privilege. And then we use our privilege for the sake of others. Now, if you're not mad already, this next slide is going to make you mad. Because here's the first suggestion I'm going to give you. The first thing we ought to do is get woke. Now, wait just a second before you run with that. So whatever you have in your mind when I say that, whatever wokeness means to you, let me explain. To be woke refers to having your eyes open to the way the world really is. And that's what God wants for us. To wake up to the fact that God has spoken and we are responsible. That God has given us blessing. He's given us the gospel. And he's told us to go with the gospel. He's given us money and time and talent and treasure. 
all of these, what are we going to do with them? Because God has given them to us as a gift, not so that we would hold on to them and hoard them, so that we would be an open conduit of his blessing to the world. That's what he's given us. Wake up! We all have to wake up to that fact that everything we have is a blessing not to be used for us, but for others. God has spoken and we are responsible. And if you don't see that, if you don't recognize God's gift and his grace to you, then you need to get woke. Wake up and have your eyes opened to it. And the second thing we have to do is repent. Not of your privilege, which you likely can't help. Praise God for the blessings he's given you. But to repent of your selfishness, your arrogance, your laziness, your ingratitude. And when I say you, I mean me. Repent for placing, we should repent for placing our preferences in judgment over God's word rather than placing ourselves under God's word, in subjection to it, listening and open to what he wants us to do. I don't want Jesus to stand in judgment over me. I don't want him to say, woe is you, First Baptist Church. You wasted your privilege with unrepentant hearts. You hoarded my blessings for yourself. So enjoy it while it lasts, because it won't last forever. In 1517, on October 31st, a little-known monk named Martin Luther came and chastised the Roman Catholic Church that was gluttonously feasting on their own privilege. And here's how he started. He said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So what does repentance look like for you? What does it look like for you to take your privilege and to use it in a way that God would want it? What would it look like for you to set down your preferences, to prefer God's preferences over them? This is the question we have to have in our minds as we bring both our preferences and our privilege to the communion table this morning and as we do business with Jesus. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus has blessed you and privileged you. And so today as we come, how do we listen to the voice of God? Or I would encourage you to listen to the voice of God this morning and then go from here, repenting, thanking, asking, and listening as we follow God together. Let's pray. Jesus, another heavy, weighty, passage of scripture and in it we see that we often set our own expectations over your voice over your word we repent from that this morning jesus we see that we often take our privilege and we take it for granted we assume it we expect you to give us more we become lazy God, would you open our eyes to the things that we just need to simply say thank you for this morning? Maybe that's what our repentance looks like, God, that we would simply say thank you. So as we come to the table, we come with gratitude. We come wanting our eyes to be 
open. We want to be woken up to what you have to say and, and the way that you've blessed us and how you want us to use it. And so, God, do your work in our hearts, in our midst. Don't find us hard-hearted. Don't find us justifying our preferences. It's your expense. Find us willing and humble and submissive. King Jesus, we are your subjects. We want you to work in our midst. Pray all this in your name and for your glory. Amen.